In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Glory be to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, now and ever, and to the ages of all ages, Amen. Today we're celebrating the second day of the Feast of the Cross, a three-day feast, which usually comes about two weeks into the Coptic New Year. Um, and uh, in the doxology, uh, like a hymn of praise for the Feast of the Cross, we sing and we say, the cross is our joy. Um, now, there's a lot of things that we say in church that if we stop to pause and think about them, I'm not sure if we would really find ourselves truly agreeing with them or not. Many times when something happens in somebody's life, like, a, you know, someone who, like, is, speaks the Christian lingo, you know, um, uh, and, you know, something bad, they lose their job, they get sick, they get cancer, they get, they'll say, I guess this is my cross, right? So, but they'll, don't say it with, like, yes, this is my cross. They say it like, I guess this is my cross that I have to bear, everybody has a cross they have to carry, and so on, right? But in the doxology, we say the cross is our joy, the cross is our victory, the cross is our pride. So which is it, right? Historically, I want to tell you that all of history would agree with the less enthusiastic version of the cross. In fact, crucifixion wasn't invented by the Romans. I don't know if I've shared this with you all, or maybe I shared this in Bible study, right? Crucifixion was actually probably invented, um, it was probably invented much earlier, uh, maybe by the Persians. Um, but Alexander the Great, he, he perfected crucifixion. I mean, he, he used crucifixion at every opportunity, in almost every victory of war, and every time he would conquer, he would use it to, to really to destroy the enemy. After the victory, after they've won the battle, they would take all of the governors and all of the viziers and all of the, the rulers of that nation and they would crucify them as they would feast on the spoils of that city and they would drink and they would eat and they would and the the the, vic, the victorious army would be having a party outside of the city walls and the city which had fallen would be going up in smoke and its rulers are hanging naked from crosses and part of their festivities was to ridicule them and to spit on them and to and to beat them um, and it was, really, it was really an act of humiliation. It was really an act of, 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 uh, of, of proving that, ye, that we have conquered you. It was extreme brutality, you know, taken from physical brutality to now emotional and psychological brutality. They were, they were really destroying the identity of this nation. That's what crucifixion was. The Romans then just carried on doing doing some of the same and in Jesus time in Jesus time crucifixion was more more or less used because the roman the romans had a lot of peace on many of their borders but it was sort of revived shall we say for Jesus and if you think about it carefully you know Jesus' last public appearance was on the cross. After that, he appeared when he rose from the dead 
to, his, to Mary Magdalene, to the, the, the other women who are coming to the tomb, to his 12 disciples in the upper room, small groups of people. But his last public appearance in front of everyone was hanging naked from a cross. Jesus lost. In the, the public opinion, he lost. I mean, that's what, the, that's what crucifixion was a symbol of. It was a symbol of, of being in a battle and the losers were the ones hanging from crosses. So my question for you and for me today is how did we go from the cross is the symbol of having lost in battle and being vanquished both materially and now emotionally and psychologically and publicly humiliated. How did it go from being a symbol of that to the joy is our, the cross is our joy, the cross is our weapon, the cross is our, and you know, if we read the doxology together, you'll find so many beautiful things written in it. How did it go from that to in, the, in, in one of the prayers in the, the fifth litany and the sixth hour prayer, you know, in the daily, in the daily prayer book that's divided into hours, there's one of the hours is called the sixth hour and one of the prayers in it is called the fifth litany. And it, and it says, for, for the joy that was set before him, he went up on the cross. How? How does that work? How did we go from one thing on one very end of the spectrum to the other. The secret is, the secret is, in, in the details. That fifth litany says, we worship your incorruptible person, O good Lord, and we ask you for the forgiveness of our sins, O Christ our God. For of your own good will you were pleased, or other translations say joyed, to be lifted up on the cross. Why? To deliver those whom you had created from the bondage of the enemy. For the joy that was set before him, Christ went up on the cross. St. Paul clarifies and he tells us, don't think that the, that the cross is, is pleasant for anyone. It's not. The cross is not a, a pleasant experience for anyone, nor for Jesus, nor for the martyrs. The martyrs went to their, to, to, to their, to their tortures joyfully, but it wasn't, it's, not because, it's not because they were expecting it not to hurt. It's not because they were expecting it to be um, a walk in the park. It's not because of that, no. But it's because they saw this, they saw this as a very clear and necessary portal to something far better. And like it said in the litany that we just read now, you are pleased to be lifted up on the cross to deliver those whom you had created from the bondage of the enemy. There's this concept in theology called divine economy. It basically means that God is, God is economical. God looks at, at things and says, what's the best way I can achieve this? And so he sees the cross in one hand and he sees our slavery 
to sin and to self in the other. And he says it would be far cheaper or more economical for me to be crucified than for my beloved creation to remain in bondage. St. Peter puts it to us a little bit differently. Same concept, same ideas in the, um, in the reading that we read today. St. Peter's writing at a time during the first persecution ever. People are really shocked that, there's, that, they're, that they're being persecuted. And he tells them that God has begotten us he has, like, he has brought us forth. Like The reason that He has brought us forth is for an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. So He starts off by telling them that, look, you have an inheritance. Yesterday I was sitting with some youth and we were talking, we were talking about, somehow we got to talking about why I love my daughters. And there's nothing that my daughters can do that could possibly make me love them more or love them any less. Why? Because the relationship between me and them is not conditional upon actions. The relationship between me and them is dependent on their pedigree. It's because they are my daughters. And... And there's nothing they can do to undo that. They can change their last name. They can disown me, but they will still be my daughters. And I will still love them. And there's that, that's not something that they can change. And St. Peter is telling us here that though you may go through fiery trials, an inheritance is prepared for you. Only children inherit. I don't know that much about inheritance law, but it would seem to me that only children inherit. And St. Peter is telling them, yes, you're going through a fire trial. Yes, you're going through a difficult time. Yes, you're, yes, you are experiencing the cross of Christ that he himself experienced beforehand. But an inheritance is prepared for you. And nobody can take that away from you. He says, in fact, you are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation to be revealed at the last time. And he tells them, though I know you are grieved by various trials. I know, I know you're going through a hard time because of these various trials. But your faith and the genuineness of your faith is being tested in the fire. Like gold or silver refined in the fire. That when it's tested, it can be, it can be proven to be gold. I've shared this with you all before, but maybe in a different context. Um, back in my previous career, one of my roles was to teach. And um, teaching in medicine is often through a very Socratic method. You ask people questions and they have to answer your questions. And this is often done in public. Um, so it, it can, be, can be humiliating if you don't know the answers to the questions. Um, I hated it. I, I hated what we called shame-based learning, right? I absolutely hated it. But I realized that I couldn't get away from it because this is just how business was done. This was how you, 
This was how you taught people. So what would I do? I would feed, I would know, like I, having worked in one place for a long time, I would know what questions typically get asked of what level of trainees, and I know the answers. So in the morning, while grabbing a cup of coffee, I would feed them the questions and I would feed them the answers, right? And if the big boss didn't ask them the question that I just fed them the answer to 15 minutes ago, I would ask them the question, right? And sometimes I'd ask them one question, two questions, three questions, four questions, five questions, six questions. And my boss later would take me aside saying, man, why are you going down so hard on that guy? Like, give him a break or whatever. And he would pass with flying colors. Why? Because I fed him the answers 15 minutes ago. He wrote them on his coffee cup, you know? I would never ask him a question he didn't know the answer to. That would make him look bad. I don't want to do that. God does the same thing with you and with me. He allows us to go through these fiery trials for the purposes of the genuinity of your faith to be proven to be good as gold. Why? Because he knows it's good as gold. He's not testing you in something that he doesn't know the answer to. He knows the answer. He just wants to prove it to the whole world. He doesn't want to celebrate how awesome you are alone. He wants to celebrate how awesome you are to the whole world. Now, I'm not bigging you up here. You're not awesome because you're awesome. You're awesome because he made you that way. Because he made you that way. He knows. He knows because he made you. But God is humble. He's not in it for himself. He's not in it so people can tell him, wow, your creation is so amazing. He doesn't need that. He's in it for you. And so if I can begin to see the cross not as an end, but as a means. Richard Bach says something really beautiful. He says, the caterpillar sees the cocoon as its end. The butterfly knows it's just the beginning. We see difficulty, trials, suffering. Myself, I'm in the same boat, right? And when we're squeezed and when we're feeling the pain, we see it as an end. We see it as our demise. We see it as our, you know, our undoing. We see it as this is, this is the end. But, but God is in it for the long haul. He, he, is, uh, he is a long-term investment kind of guy. He is not a day trader. He's not a quick win kind of guy. He's in it for the long haul. Like long, like eternity long. And so we feel the squeeze and we feel like, ah, oh, this is the end. But God knows God knows. He knows what we can, what, what we can handle. And with the, with the trial, says, says the same verse about that in, in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, he provides a way of escape. He's already planned the exit strategy. He's already planned the resurrection 
before Jesus ever goes up on the cross. So this becomes, it becomes a means, it becomes a path to a greater end. Okay, Abuna, I'm convinced in my head, but Abuna, next time, Father John, next time I'm in the squeeze, next time I'm on the cross, I guarantee you I'm not going to be saying I'm joyed to go up on the cross. The cross is my joy, the cross is my victory, the cross is my weapon. I'm going to be screaming in pain because the pain really hurts. It does. So how can we, how can we remember these divine truths so next time we're in the squeeze, we can look up and, and thank God for it and thank God that this, is, that this is like the stepping stone to higher ground. I personally, I'll share with you, I only, for my practical life, okay, I only know one thing that has worked with me without fail. Time and time and time and time and time and time and time again. And it's to share in the sufferings of other people. It's to, to live a life of compassion. Come, like community, like share together. Passion, pathos, suffering. It's to, it's to, it's to find somebody on, on my good days, on my bad days, I don't, got, I don't got anything to help nobody, right? I'm just trying to stay alive. But on my good days, if I like eat, drink and be merry, then, then I forget. I forget how salvific suffering is. When I have the pleasure, forgive me that I'm saying this, when I have the pleasure and the privilege of accompanying other people through their suffering, through their pain, And I'm not going to tell you that I try to comfort people because 9.9 out of 10 times, there's nothing I know how to say that's going to make you feel better. Because the depth of human suffering is, is, is deeper than, than the depth of our minds, than logic, than words. So words, words are helpful, but it's something that almost only God himself can touch because it goes so deep. The best I know how to do is to be present, to accompany, to be there, to be human with this person and to accept their suffering, not to fight it, to accept it with the hope of the resurrection, with the hope of the joy that this leads to, with the hope of the freedom that this leads to. That keeps my feet on the ground. That keeps me realizing that these tough times are meant for good times. They're meant to raise us to higher ground. That's their purpose. That's why God allows them. And they, that reminds me of that. So then next time, next time I hit a rough patch, I remember what God did in this person's life and what he did in that person's life and what he did in that person's life and I think to myself well God is faithful as God was faithful with this person and this person and that person and that person he will be faithful with me then the cross does become my joy it does become my weapon it does become my invincibility 
when we say that the joy, the cross is our weapon, I want to end with this. We're not talking about some weapon of destruction to others. We're talking about that the cross, the, the willing acceptance of suffering in my life without kicking up a fuss, without complaining, without just accepting it with gratitude, just accepting it with thanks, becomes an invincible, conquerable, unconquerable weapon. I'll share with you one example. St. Basil the Great was imprisoned. St. Basil the Great, who wrote the liturgy that we pray, was imprisoned for speaking against the emperor. The emperor was living uh, a debaucherous life and, you know, had mistresses and so on. And so he spoke up against him because the emperor was Christian in theory. So the emperor imprisoned him, brought him out a couple of days later and told him, look, you have to stop speaking against me or I'm going to put you back in prison. He told him, thank you for giving me a few days of relief from the troubles of the bishopric and all of that's going on in my diocese. I've had more peace in the last three days than I've had in so long. And he told him, what, you enjoy prison? You have to sleep on the floor, on a hard stone floor. Told him, since I've been a monk, I've slept on the floor and never slept in a bed ever since the day, first day of my monasticism. He told him, if you don't stop speaking against me, we'll only let you eat once a day. He told him, I only eat once a day at sunset. Please, don't change that. That's my rule of life. He told him, we'll only give you raw vegetables. He told him, that's great. Ever since the beginning of my monastic life, I've only eaten raw vegetables. He threw him back in prison. He didn't know what to do with him. If he kills him, a revolt will start. You know, the emperor can't kill the archbishop. If he tortures him publicly or something, same thing. And there's nothing he can deprive him of because he has been crucifying himself. St. Paul in the Pauline epistle today said, I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. St. Basil in this instance is someone who accepted the cross willingly. He, he chose a life of asceticism he chose to crucify his flesh and then he became unconquerable even before the emperor of the known world at the time. Glory be to you, God forever and ever.